collaborative design approach, it really is about creating the conditions, being intentional about making sure that you have all the voices that are affected by the system in the room so that it's not designing in a non-inclusive way. For me, it's, it's also about knowing when I need to step back and recognizing that others can be doing and leading the journey. Hello, you've reached Hotline Design Podcast. How may we help you? And welcome back to Hotline Design Podcast. In this week's episode, we're talking to our fantastic friend of the pod, Mrs. Kelly Cornette Weaver, design lead extraordinaire at Garage in Canada. She'll be telling us all about the collaborative design process, participatory futurism, and why she picked up a survivor addiction in season 41 of the show. So ladies, I have to know, how have your weeks been? Hello, hello. Lovely to see you all again. It's been a while. So yeah, I had a super busy few weeks. Work has kind of moved from user research to workshops, back to user research. We're wireframing next week. It's been intense, but really, really rewarding at the same time. On a personal note, my best friend started inviting me to go to badminton at the weekends. And I found that that's a really fun way to catch up while being active. Because I think I am a bit of a couch potato recently. So he's really helped. What about you guys? Oh, she's so classy with her badminton. Do you wear like all whites and tie like little Liz Claiborne sweaters around your shoulders? That is a great inspiration. I'm currently the opposite. I'm like all black. We love gothic badminton. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But next time. What about you, Sim? I actually went on holiday and I just got back two days ago. It was really nice. I was in Copenhagen and it was my first trip abroad after 18 months. So ate a lot of pastries, did a bit of cycling, tried not to piss off Danish people who are very, very nice um, and very forgiving of my lack of ability to cycle. So yeah, had a really great time abroad. And what about you, Lauren? Oh, amazing. That sounds delightful. If you have any spare pastries, you could always throw them my way. I am here to help. Yeah, but things have been good. Really, like my update is Guy Fawkes Day happened. It's a thing here in the UK. I don't fully understand it, but something about the V for Vendetta mask guy, Guy Fawkes, storming something, government. Yeah. I I don't know. I get confused with like French history. I'm like, did he storm the Bastille? But like, no, Menon. (laughs) So basically it translates into like modern times in the UK where there are bonfires. People keep telling you to remember, remember the 5th of November. And then fireworks go off for not only that night, but literally like two weeks. And it's getting dark early here in the UK. So it's like four o'clock and I'm still seeing fireworks. So apologies if there's any fireworks in this audio, because they're out here. Yeah, it's been our first Guy Fawkes with a puppy, and she's not been liking it at all. And it's like impossible to shield her. We obviously keep her inside, but you can't like audio fence the whole house. So yeah, it's it's been rough. Girl, you need to get like a full-fledged like podcast studio in your house so that Eno can live in a studio for like the entire week of Guy Fox Day. That's actually not a bad shot. And speaking of someone we've locked in a podcast studio, we'd like to welcome our very special guest calling in 
all the way from Canada, the fantastic designer and recently wifed up catch, Kelly Cornette Weber. Welcome to the show. It's great to be joining you, Lavinia, Yusin, on the podcast. So excited to be here. Oh, amazing. And Kelly, just jumping right in, we love to ask our guests this question. How would you describe your title and what you do? Sure. So I'll start by describing the organization that I joined about a year ago, Courage, which is a funny sounding word. It's actually spelled C-O-E-U-R-A-J. So our work is all about helping people address change, but looking first to the solutions that they hold within themselves. And in my role as a design lead at Courage, it's all about creating the conditions for folks to do this kind of work. So sometimes that's building the alignment on the changes they're seeking to make, intentionally engaging folks across the system to meaningfully participate. And uh, sometimes it's also about creating the space for the, the folks in this journey to transform them in the process. So the projects themselves term transformation journeys, where it might be a little fuzzy, a little ambiguous. We're trying to support our client partners in navigating the outcomes that they're trying to reach. Other times it's more focused and it might be a really high magnitude event where we're bringing together dozens, if not hundreds of people to transform a system in a very short amount of time. So it's it, it can be really dynamic and it really varies across our clients and, and their needs. Is it usually just in the digital space or does that go across face-to-face -face spaces? That is a fabulous question. So when I joined a year ago, it was fully remote. So everything was virtual. When I joined, I hadn't met any of my colleagues and we're all across Canada now in the States as well. And it was challenging because only designing for those remote experiences where you can't see or pick up on the vibe of people in the room, it's still possible to have really meaningful transformational work. But now we're starting to get more back into the room. So earlier this summer, I got to go up north and facilitate a, a COVID-friendly workshop. So we had people distributed. We gave them their own work kits to design with. And, and it was all about setting up to keep everybody safe. Nice. That is, that's amazing. And so super interesting. I was just going to ask a little bit about the types of clients and organizations that you work with. What kinds of industries or communities do you normally tend to collaborate with? Yeah, we have a few different kinds of clients. We're also doing more work in environmental impact too. So carbon neutrality has been a really big focus. So how do we support companies in the changes they need to make internally and externally to make their operations carbon neutral? So we've been doing that with some mining companies. And uh, often it's a mix of mining companies or some industrial company plus communities, plus government. And it's all about bringing together different interest holders to build that alignment and move forward together. And one question we always love to ask is, what is your design origin story? And to make the question more complex, we heard that within Courage, you have this term, participatory futurist, and we were super curious what that means. So yeah, I wonder what has been your design journey and how it led you to this path in participatory futurism. It's such a nice invitation to reflect back on journeys. Often it's so non-linear in terms of how you arrive at this space. And when I think about my earliest designer type experiences, it goes back to The Sims and playing way too much as a kid, like designing the best houses. It's so funny thinking about it from the context of being a participatory designer that, so I'll just speak to what that term means to me, but it, it's about folks together to envision possible futures for themselves, for their communities. Sometimes it involves looking out at 
how the world might be evolving. So taking trends and driving forces, big data points around shifts that we might be seeing and, and making meaning of that together in an almost change-oriented way. So it's recognizing that things and we'll need to transform in order to, to keep up with what's going to be competitive or with what's going to be relevant. But if I think about The Sims, it's kind of funny because <laughs> when you create a family and you know you're you're role-playing in the simulation of The Sims in a fun and kind of quirky way. It is scenario planning in the same way that a foresight practitioner is imagining possible futures. <laughs> like, I'm not going to out myself and creating myself as a Sim as a kid because I definitely didn't do that. <laughs> Just to get my dream job. Like, that's a really weird exercise. <laughs> Honestly, I did that last year. I downloaded <laughs> the latest Sim and I designed myself, my partner, our favorite like home so no shame no judgment here no judgment are do we have any murderers in the house did anyone uh, build a pool and delete the ladder no just me <laughs> yeah just like draw out that curiosity kill, and kill people <laughs> but just to play in the future in that way for me my my design journey has routes and when I was in high school I actually got an apprenticeship as a tattoo artist which was fun and it ended up being more of a hobby it it wasn't where my heart was at but I did really enjoy that experience and and the learning that came with permanently marking other people (laughs) I ended up going to to school or teach art and then I had to reluctantly take a conceptual design course and it broke my brain in probably the best way. It just made me think about the world in a very different way and thinking about how design as a tool, as a process, as an art form can be used to help people think differently, to question their own assumptions or beliefs, to feel the feels in terms of, you know, you can make something that brings people to have like an emotional response to that and meaningful in that way or, or funny too, both valid emotions. But I did have a shout out there for, for Jay Wilson, my teacher, because he really just liked the magic that was designed. And then once once I had that course, there was no turning back. Uh, Jay Wilson, friend of the pod. Yeah. So after I did that first year design course, I ended up really taking a liking to design right after undergrad university, where I completed a master's of design in strategic foresight and innovation, which is where that participatory futurism came from for me, my interest in it. I was really like we were in an experiment in that program because brought together a new mix of folks from like totally different disciplines and parts of the world and different mindsets, different paradigms. And they just put us in groups together and said, figure it out. We had a mix of design thinking, systems thinking, this space called futures thinking, which as I've been talking about this idea of getting people to think about possible futures. But the program really equipped us for working in really collaborative ways. So my first course, we were working in a team, myself, a good friend of mine, who's a textile designer from India, and an engineer from Rio, and a manufacturing expert from Southern Rio. And we were just put in a group together and invited to imagine how to solve for the aging population in Canada, and particularly their access to housing. And we totally bombed it. We did such a bad job at first, but we hit a reset point. <laughs> we, we had this like utopian vision of intergenerational housing where like young people would learn from elders and elders would learn from young people. And then it was like the, the courses in Toronto. So we're envisioning it in Toronto. And then at the end of the project, like we'd spent like three weeks on it, our professor asks us, so would you live there? And none of us wanted to live there. 
like it was so out of touch with what people's actual desires were for for living at that time. <laughs> so we had to hit the reset button and we started with an article on it was actually about homeless veterans in in the city project but based on evidence based on research and true true needs and it was really cool what we were able to do together in a very short amount of time because we we had that bonding from just getting it so wrong that's truly working agile like it's so important to be able to know what it's gone off track and to have that kind of fresh start for sure and the, the question your teacher asked like you don't think about it while you're kind of in it you're so consumed by the problem and then someone asks a very seemingly obvious question and you're like wow okay maybe not <laughs> that was yeah sobering yeah exactly yeah, it's yeah. so hard to step outside of it when you're all in, especially when you're working long hours and you're just so focused on the output or the thing that you're designing for. Yeah, absolutely. And then how did you go from like OCAD and for non-Canadians, this is like the design school in Canada. How did you go from basically like the Harvard of design school to then Courage? Yeah, so while I was there, I was taking up every opportunity I could to learn about foresight and how it got applied. Like we had learned about it in our second semester and that one was all about experiential future. So it was taking these conceptual ideas about how the future might evolve and bringing people into the simulation. So we actually had to create an immersive experience for folks to step into that scenario with us to feel what it would feel like to live in at that point. It was probably 2035. 2040 that we were designing for and to think about the ethical questions that folks would have like for us we were looking at a synthetic biology the idea was to do a drug trial where our classmates were being brought into that environment to do some sort of biotech embedded implantable <laughs> type drug trial like it was very very matrix but it was fun because it it allowed us to create the space for some real like big questions around like what is it that we're really willing to do with our bodies like at what point does it go too far like are the benefits worth it or are are the risks too high so anyways that was just a fun experience that I had in that class but it got me really thinking about how bringing together that design that experiential component with the research that comes with futures thinking could create for some really impactful experiences so to work with a, a practicing futurist, Christian Cruz, who took me under his wing when I was just figuring out what the heck this stuff was, <laughs> and he really threw me out of my comfort zone. I remember like my first first gig with his company, it was called Anspace at the time, was flying to Chicago and facilitating a workshop. And like I had never facilitated anything before that. So it was it was cool to have someone trust me and like trust that I'd figure it out while also giving me the support when I was trying to to learn the ropes of, of this kind of work. But yeah, I had the chance to work with him for um, a few years on and off. And also Helen Kerr at Kerr Smith, she was actually my advisor when I was doing my research. And then I worked under her at her design studio, Kerr Smith. That was great experience at the combination of design and foresight. I spent a couple of years working in management consulting, which really, again, pushed me out of my comfort zone. But yeah, so in management consulting, that was an opportunity for me to learn a bit about project management, how to be a consultant, how to, to operate in a professional way, how to lead change journeys. I think that was my biggest learning from it was especially when you're bringing people through a foresight exercise where it's really fuzzy, they're not totally convinced, the process feels a bit daunting. <laughs> 
but you need to reassure them that it's it's going to bring them to a solid endpoint and big insights that they wouldn't have had otherwise if, if they didn't trust the process. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's incredibly eye-opening and it's just so inspiring to hear your journey and all of these anecdotes about how you learned more about design along the way. So I think you've mentioned collaboration several times and we just had a question around what the collaborative design process looks like to you. What comes to mind first is making the distinction between design thinking and collaboration design. Design thinking is often about bringing people into the process to either shape the user requirements or shape the needs that you're solving for. Where collaboration design or collaborative design takes that further is you're bringing people up front into the process. So it might even be before the stated outcome has been decided. So you're you're bringing them into shape. What are the outcomes we're trying to reach together? And you're bringing them into shape the process that we're going to be going on together. So they play a more active role than in a, a traditional design approach. And I think for me, what I just shared about being a management consultant and and my training in design is I've really had to learn to let go and like specifically learning to let go of the pen as a designer. So often we'll have points of view or a mindset towards what the solution might be or what the the answer is. And in a collaborative design approach, it really is about creating the conditions, being intentional about making sure that you have all the voices that are affected by the system in the room so that it's not designing in a non-inclusive way. For me, it's, it's also about knowing when I need to step back and recognizing that others can be doing and leading the journey and and I can take a step back from that part of the journey or only being there it needed and as a support so it's it's a bit of a dance that way because I think as a designer my training hasn't necessarily equipped me for those moments and when to know if I'm over designing or um, playing too active of a role so it's it's a bit of intuition and then also just some gutting learning along the way of when I'm making a mistake or when I'm uh, bringing in like an attitude that's not helpful or in, in some cases harmful too. And Kelly, how do you like set those expectations off the top when you're working with individuals, organizations, communities to kind of have that collaborative design process? Yeah, so a lot of it starts with setting group norms up front that tries to position all of the participants that are in this process as co-creators, co-conspirators, they're owning the process, they're driving. I'm just there as the process facilitator to be there as a support. Thank you so much for talking about what a collaborative design process means to you and also just for elaborating on how that's different from a standard design thinking process. We'd really love to know more about how Courage structure its teams to support this collaborative design process? This was actually the thing that convinced me most to join Courage when I was learning more about the organization. But they really delineate the role of a designer as a process facilitator and a process expert, while also complementing that with folks internally that are content experts. And so we have a systems navigation team and many of the folks on that team have a combination of lived experience, professional experience, working to, to change systems from the inside. So whether that's in government, some folks from First Nations communities as well, and the generosity that my colleagues have in terms of sharing their experience, sharing their knowledge, guiding myself and my peers on the, the design team with how to intentionally and thoughtfully approach the work that we do has been the biggest thing that I 
just come to love about this work is everything that we do. It's about really humbly looking at what's needed to do the work and also to have really different experiences than I do. So some of them have worked in service design, designing board games, things like organizational development, which I didn't even know that that was a field before joining this role, but it's all about tapping into the wisdom of, of an organization and, and bringing them together to solve their own problems. It relates back to that collaborative design mindset and skill set too. And yeah, so as a participatory futurist, I found that I can share some of my skills and there's other futurists on the team too, but we're able to to learn from each other. And like if you get stuck or if there's a point where our project is moving towards a direction that someone else on my team might have more experience or a different point of view on, I'm, I'm always able to kind of tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, like, can we figure this out together? It's been really refreshing just to have such, such a, a team with such a broad and diverse set of skills. And speaking of a team with broad and diverse skills, intentionally and thoughtfully taking a humble look at something, we've got this week's Hotline Design Hotline question. Hey, Hotline Design Hotline. My name's Casey, and I'm a product designer and a longtime listener, but first-time caller. I've been trying to employ some more collaborative design processes in my current project, and I was wondering if you had any advice about building positive team dynamics throughout this process? Thank you. Thanks so much, Casey. Great question. My starting point would be to set group norms up front. So often you can co-create those together with the folks that are along for the journey, but making sure that we are being explicit about what we need to show up in this space in a good way together. So one of the ones that I love is the idea of being tough on issues, but gentle on people so that in the event that people have differing opinions or if if someone says something that challenges another, just remembering to be tough on the issue and, and not on the person. From my end, I was going to suggest being a little bit meta and trying to be collaborative in building those positive team dynamics. So maybe engaging your colleagues and asking them how they would go about it or how they like to be engaged with. I know some companies have these really cool like about me sheets and they ask questions like, how do you like working? When are the times when you're most productive? Do you prefer async or sync communication? All of those things can make your team feel like you're bringing them along the journey of being more collaborative. Yeah, cool. Lavinia, I was just going to build on your answer slightly because I've also heard of something similar. And I think it's by Julie Chua, who's a design lead at Facebook. She was talking about how it can be useful sometimes to write user guides about working with yourself. And I think this is not something I've personally done, but something that I found out about recently. And so if the next time I join a new project, I'm definitely going to just write a couple of sentences on how I like to work. And I think probably encourage some of my teammates to do the same so that we have a deeper understanding of how everyone on the team likes to work and how we can accommodate and work with that. And the other thing I was just going to say is, I know in a previous episode as well, we talked about how sometimes, and I think probably to Kelly's point as well, you might decide agree on certain things or have very strong opinions that don't necessarily match up to what other people think but if you just try and reframe that and think about what goal you're trying to achieve as a group sometimes it, I think it makes it easier to come to consensus 
when you try and reframe it and think about what would work best in solving your common goal rather than focus on what individuals think? Yeah, definitely. And Casey, what a great question. Yeah, I, I love the idea about how we build positive team dynamics through this kind of collaborative design process. And my initial thinking was icebreakers because I do love icebreakers, but I think I'm going to push beyond trust falls, which by the way, I've never been allowed to do in my workshops. I'm officially campaigning to bring back trust falls. I know they're dangerous, (laughs) but they instill immediate trust. (laughs) And I guess I would like to say to really build in informal time where you can kind of unbutton the top button, not literally, please no. I don't want any calls from HR, but basically a time where you go from work mode to friend mode and you can maybe kind of go out and grab lunch with the people you're working with. You hear a bit more about their life outside of work and you can really start fostering a bit more of a kind of caring and friendly relationship as opposed to like a hello colleague and that's it. That's all you are to me. Okay, I'm also just dying to know what your favorite icebreakers are. (laughs) <laughs> it is whipping beanbags oh, oh yeah that's an inside joke <laughs> yeah basically like you ask people a series of questions but you know how like everyone's shy and no one wants to participate you simply like take a beanie baby or like a little beanbag or any item stapler who knows <laughs> and you like throw it across the room and that's the person that goes next oh uh, that's fun because you literally have to be alert so that you don't become concussed <laughs> And also, like, it involves everyone. That's actually so good. I love it. How about you, gals? What's your favorite icebreaker? I I do have one, but I don't know if it's necessarily my favorite. It's my go-to one. It seems to always bring people out of their shell and get, like, funny stories out. But I ask them, what is the most interesting job you've ever had? And responses I get are insane like in one workshop we had someone from mi5 that used to work for the mi5 and apparently it's are they been allowed five... to tell you that yeah it's been five years <laughs> and apparently after five years you're allowed to say oh no way that's cool or tattoo artists like kelly yeah exactly yeah people bring out like loads of cool yeah little jobs projects they've been involved in that's a yeah. great one but it's a question more than an icebreaker yeah it definitely still counts yeah Amazing. Thank you so much for your question, Casey. I hope that helped. And as always, if you've got a question, you can submit it at anchor.fm slash hotline design pod. And of course, before we go, we have to ask one final question to our fabulous guest, Kelly. And that is your obsession with Survivor. This is definitely a budding obsession. I'm a little late seeing as we're 41 seasons in. But my partner, his family religiously watches. They've watched every single season. They have a survivor pool going too. So for the past few years, I've gotten in on this pool, even though I don't really know how to how to pick participants or uh, how to pick contestants that I think are going to win. Because it's just like, oh, this person seems really lovely. Like, <laughs> let's go with them. Amazing. Have you ever won any money off of it? Actually, yeah, there was one a couple years ago. I don't remember who it was, though. Yeah, I think I won the whole $20 that was the survivor pool. We're big spenders. Oh my gosh, get that coin. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So just before we wrap up the episode, Kelly, where can we find you online or 
Not in person, sorry. We, we sound like predators. When are we coming to Canada? <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking Saskatchewan, you know, I'd like to send you an address there. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn under Kelly Cornette, K-E-L-L-Y-K-O-R-N-E-T. Haven't yet updated with my new name, New Digs. <laughs> and you can also check out our, our website, Courage, which is C-O-E-U-R-A-J.com. Amazing. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the pod. This was an amazing episode. We had so much fun learning about collaborative design process and all your amazing, amazing projects. And thank you so much to our listeners. You can find us again at Hotline Design Pod on Instagram and Hotline Design Pod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected. Please check the number and try your call again.